Hello, and welcome to I Found a Thing, the podcast where we take a couple of minutes, look through Kickstarter, and talk about it. My name is Evan Winch, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Sean Moore. And Sean, some would say, third time's the charm on this one. That's right. (laughs) I don't know how to record things, apparently. Well, it's also the third episode of the podcast, so I figured it was kind of a uh, joke there that no one's going to get but us. We both have three games. How far can we go with this? Wow. It just it goes all the way to the top, doesn't it? Uh, so you've been looking at Kickstarter. What games have you been looking at? Well, I came across this one yesterday, and I had not heard of it prior to that, but it apparently has a fairly large following, and a lot of people are saying it's kind of fun. So I am bringing Imperial, which is not spelled the way you think it is. It's E-M-P-Y-R-E-A-L, and it is a game about magic trains. Ooh, so this is like, this is not a spinoff to Ticket to Ride, right? No, but imagine Ticket to Ride meets JRPG meets some sort of weird hodgepodge of fantasy. Is there a storyline in this? I don't know. It looks like there are reoccurring cities. Like, uh, they actually have travel posters in the How to Play video for the different locations you can go to. I don't think there's an overall story mode. I could be wrong on that, though. So there's no like passenger conductor romance going on there. That would be wonderful if there was, and I would absolutely <laughs> back that expansion. <laughs> uh, what this game is going to be, though, is it's going to be a game of hexes. So there's a lot, and I don't mean like magic hexes, I mean actual physical eight-sided hexagons. On the board, that's going to make up your map of terrain, and then throughout the game, you're going to be adding trains to your network and collecting little resources that crop up on that terrain. The cars on your train have powers, which you're going to activate using mana crystals throughout the game. And eventually, you'll be able to deliver the resources you're collecting to cities to claim vouchers for victory points. And then once the game end triggers, you're going to take all the resources that you've used to buy those little vouchers, add it together with the vouchers, and figure out who wins. Okay, so this isn't brand new. This is an expansion that's happening right now for it, or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. So it is a game that came out originally in 2018, which seems to be the year that most games came out on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. There have been a couple of expansions since then. What has brought it back to Kickstarter is a mini expansion, which you can buy if you have purchased uh, Imperial prior to this for the low, low cost of $9 US, which is just going to have the new mini expansion otherwise it's a way of people to get on the imperial bandwagon if they hadn't heard of it prior to now what is the main focus in here so ticket to drive you're trying to complete routes what are you doing here what's the square mechanic so it's very much trying to collect as many resources as possible but it's kind of a tableau builder in disguise because of those rail cars So on your turn, you have a couple of different actions you can take. One is going to be activating one of your specialists, which could be like a conductor, could be an engineer. Some of these specialists are one-time use. You can use them once over the course of the game. Others of them are going to reset every time you take an administrative action. And what the administrative actions allow you to do is progress your conductor down a track by spending your mana crystals. And then wherever he winds up, you'll then activate what you've built up on your tableau of rail cars. And that could be things like placing more track down, refreshing certain abilities, gaining more crystals, that sort of thing. And what you're trying to do is make yourself as efficient as possible in collecting the resources you want to then buy those vouchers I mentioned earlier to use toward endgame scoring. Uh, endgame triggers once you have collected a set number of vouchers, depending on the number of players you have, that could range from uh, three to six. And once someone has actually hit that threshold, endgame scoring begins after the last round. If we're playing against each other, do we can play competitively or are we kind of like passive with each other? 
It seems pretty passive. It's very Euro-y in that regard. Um, there doesn't seem to be a ton of player interaction. Some of the expansions might bring that in. I mostly was looking into uh, the base game on this one. A lot of the components are pretty nice. Uh, you can get just the base game for 70 bucks US. Uh, if you want to get real fancy with it, you can grab the deluxe version of the game with a couple of the expansions for 159 US. Or you can just get everything for uh, two fifty. That, yeah, it's, that's a lot. It's a little <laughs> on the pricey side. That's uh, definitely something that is a little bit easy to bounce off of with this one. I don't know if the gameplay entices me enough to make me go, yeah, all in seems like a really awesome idea. Uh, even base price seems a little steep to me, but they do have a Tabletopia mod, which means you can give it a little bit of a try before you actually take the plunge and drop like sixty bucks. I have one that is not a new expansion, but it is a new addition. So this is Sentinels of the Multiverse Definitive Edition. So that sounds very comic booky in the name, does it not? It does. It also sounds very final. There's some finality to that. You mean with a definitive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I was going to go into this long like Final Fantasy rant where like, oh, how is that Final Fantasy? There's 100 games. Clearly, it's not the final one. I always assumed with that it was like, this is the Final Fantasy. There's just a lot of parts. <laughs> right. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings is a sweeping epic that takes technically six books to tell. Final Fantasy is just this really, really long story. It's like how I met your mother. Yeah, except with swords with guns on them. This is pretty cool if you're just looking to upgrade from the original Sentinels. Uh, if you love that game a lot when it came out 10 years ago and you're like, well... I've played it. I don't need to play it again. This might not be for you, but if for new players, that's a pretty good jumping off point. The original one is the best way to describe it. It's, it's strictly a card game, similar to something like Munchkin. But instead of Munchkin, where you're trying to screw over everyone just to get to level 10, it's actually cooperative. Oh. Yeah. So you are a bunch of superheroes. Like the title implies, it is very, very comic booky. You have 12 heroes to work with in this one with uh, variants as well. So every comic hero has uh, special abilities that other ones do not. And they also have their own individual decks. And they all go against one of, I think, six, yeah, six villains in six different environments. In the first one, it was kind of hard to keep track of um, damage that was dealt and health. And in this one, it's much simpler with tokens. Uh, I remember watching uh, the Dice Tower on this. Actually, just looked up the Dice Tower video of this is almost nine years old at this point. And wow. uh, Tom Vassell had to use die to just keep track of uh, the health on everyone. So this has nice little tokens to keep track of everything. Plus, uh, you also get foil cards with these as well. Um, and it's a pretty simple decision. You either get the base game at $50, the definitive edition base game, if that makes any sense, or you add another 75 bucks and it's the exact same game Exact same everything, except everything is sleeved for you right off the bat. It comes pre-sleeved. Yeah, it comes pre-sleeved, so that's pretty nice. It also comes back with a 90-day money-back guarantee. What's interesting, so there's been controversy as of late. Um, you may have heard of the Street Fighter controversy with the shipping. Mm -hmm. They didn't get their shipping done at all efficiently, and when they finally were able to get shipping quotes and VAT quotes and everything back to them, Europe got majorly messed over. Some people were being charged well over $100 just to get their stuff back. Some people were being charged more for shipping than they paid for their pledge. Yeah, exactly. 
And I have seen a few games on Kickstarter with that problem. And they're just like, there's a whole section on here, basically meaning that the prices that they've given to you are sh for shipping. It's 25 uh, to Canada. And that might not be the shipping cost. It might actually be more. They're just biting it. Wow. Which is interesting. Yeah. So they're going to charge you. They're not necessarily going to make money on it. They're just trying not to lose so much money on it. And that's the issue with the Street Fighter guys is that they they did it. They've already put out the product. They've already spent all their money. It's taken almost two years to get the product together. And now they've got these shipping costs. And they're not going to bite that because that's ridiculous. Even if they you know, try to shave that down like $50, they're going to be losing so much on it. I really like the way they freshened up the art on this. They definitely did. And the, the first one had this very, I mean, it did come out 10 years ago, but it felt like, remember when like the internet was still young and it was still trying to figure out itself and you had like a lot of web comics out there. Yeah. Like, it had that kind of feel to it. And now it's very much like in this, the art style has grown up a bunch. Uh, the artist said it himself that it's, it's miles better than what he had done before. So it's nice they brought the same artist back too. It's kind of like a hey, do you want to do this again? <laughs> we liked your stuff before, but we think you can do better. And he's like, I totally can do better. Yeah, that's nice. That one, that, that one's on my radar right now. I think it's really interesting that you have an option to get pre-sleeved cards because, to me, from my understanding as someone that does not generally sleeve cards yet, I haven't really felt the need to. That seems to be something that people take a lot of joy in doing is, oh, I'm going to be sleeving tonight. I'm going to throw something on Netflix. I'm just going to sit down, box of cards, box of sleeves, and just go at it. I wonder if that is kind of taking some of the fun away from those people or if this is an option where it's more oh man, I finally can just get a game and have it all sleeved already. Yeah, like for me, I just bought a game and it had came with a thousand cards and I'm like, all right, buy my sleeves tomorrow. And I got the, the apparently the nickname is Penny Sleeves because you get like mm -hmm. for $2, you get a hundred. Yeah. And I was all ready to go. And yeah, you're right. It's just like the same thing over and over and over again and very monotonous, but yet very satisfying until you find out these penny sleeves that you bought don't actually fit oh, no. uh, the box the game comes in and you've got 2,000 sleeves that you don't know what to do with because you can't return them because it's a pandemic lockdown again. Well, as someone that makes their own inserts and finds that very relaxing, I will hardly recommend making your own insert, which will accommodate the sleeves. Oh, maybe. The first one is awful. Every subsequent insert is way more fun to do. <laughs> <laughs> This is a bit of a tangent, but uh, when I first tried doing um, MTG years ago, I bought some sleeves thinking like, oh, this is a good idea. And I wasn't really nuts about the way the cards felt in the plastic because for me, I really like the texture of the paper. Do you feel it's worth sleeving the cards? Because I'm also starting to get some games where it's like, hey, these have a lot of cards in them that get a lot of play. Sleeves may not be a bad idea just for keeping things intact. So I didn't get very far in the sleeving process before I realized it's not going to work. Like I can't sleeve them right. and have them fit in the box and I'm not getting rid of the box anytime soon. So we haven't used them too much. There's just a, a couple of decks we've used and like I'm fine with it, but it's not something where I need to shuffle my cards all the time. And when the cards are played, they're just on the table. It's not like I'm holding them. I don't mind the plasticky feel. That's That's fine to me because after a while, like, you know, the paper feels nice, but over time, everything just breaks down. Yeah. And then you notice, like, corners are gone and then smudges and then, like, mustard. And then just, like, I'd rather <laughs> deal with, like, a new field than have a destroyed cards. I'd like to know why you're playing board games while eating mustard. 
mustard gets everywhere, right? It's like the worst condiment. The worst one I love, too. So I want to bring a twofer, but I'm going to break it up just because I have a lot to say about both games because both are very, very interesting to me. You can't segue from mustard into this, can you? You know what? I'm going to try. Speaking of mustard, that comes from kind of like the Far East and it came over to England during sort of the big boom of the East Indian Trading Company, like all those different spice roads and everything when um, traders were kind of looking for new trade routes and more efficient ways of getting product from point A to point B. And that, my friend, is exactly what John Company 2nd Edition is all about. Was that good? Was that a good... uh... According to the Wikipedia, it's been around since 1850 BC. In Europe, though? (laughs) Oh, in Europe? Oh, maybe not. Sorry. Good segue. I'm sorry. I'm being technical. In John Company, you are going to be playing as one of the shareholders of the East Indian Trading Company that was set up by the British in India during kind of the colonial period of British rule. And what you're going to be doing is basically trying to guide your family members and your influence to exert some nepotism and get yourself into really, really good positions to not only run the company, but set yourself up to retire very nicely in a swanky manner. And as your presidents and your shareholders begin to retire and your new young kids that are full of life and vim and vigor are moving up in the ranks, they are now having to pay the bill of the predecessors as they go off to stay in the beautiful mansions, which are how you get victory points, but they also kind of drag you down with upkeep costs. Okay. So this game is... Very, very heavy. And that's the thing which is kind of holding me back from jumping on it because I love the design. I think it's a really, really bizarre setup for a game, but yet everything fits together so, so well. The game is broken up into five rounds. There's about five different scenarios you can do. Uh, The main one that they recommend doing for your first couple of plays takes place in, I believe, 1710, which results in five different rounds. Each round is broken up into about 15 different components, which sounds overwhelming, but when you actually watch the game played, it's a little bit more streamlined than that. There's literally a track going around the board to help you keep track of where you are in the round's progress. And what you're going to do is go through each different department of the East India Trading Company and... Whoever holds that particular position is going to spend British pounds and make decisions which will not only affect the course of the company itself, but also kind of help put them into an advantageous position to get more money next turn. You can absolutely cause the East India Trading Company to go bankrupt, which is going to cause (laughs) problems for everybody. In fact, I was watching a gameplay earlier today and they had this really great strategy all figured out. Like It's kind of a co-op non-co-op game so they had this great strategy it failed and so what's interesting about this game is that it's very dynamic and that it goes from i'm going to try to make as much money as possible to wow we have put this company on the brink of bankruptcy i have to get rid of all my shares because each share i have is worth minus one victory point at the end of the game and this company is going bankrupt by the end of this round That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Another cool thing I really like about it is very similar to Twilight Imperium, you are given five different cards, which are promissory notes. So say, for example, we're bartering, like you really want me to invade Bombay. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't really want to invade Bombay. You got to you got to do something for me. So then you give me a card which will allow me to get two pounds off of you at any time. And so now 
I have that leverage, which I can trade to another player, or I can just cash it in at any time. So if there's a moment where you need money to be able to afford, you know, to send your outgoing president into a nice retirement villa, I can say, actually, no, I want those two pounds now, and you have to give them to me. Hmm. There's a lot of negotiation and debate that happens in this. You also get British Parliament kind of brought into it. And the other thing that I really like about it is, obviously, this is all centered around colonialism, which, in retrospect, is pretty crummy. It's a pretty awful time in uh, world history, especially in British history. And the way that the game is framed and the way that the designer has tried to set it up is to not necessarily paint any side as being villainous, but just to show how easy it can be for people with good intentions to make really, really horrible decisions that affect many people's lives just because, oh man, if I don't do this, I'm going to get in trouble. But if I do do this, I'll be fine, but everybody else gets in trouble. So I think that's a really interesting way of handling the discussion that's kind of ongoing with colonialism in board games. Thought and a question. The first thought is, I feel like the people who love Crusader Kings and those kind of paradox games would love this. I think this you're right. Like yeah. Right up their alley. Yeah. Yeah. Second thing is, I noticed that one of the things you can get is this elephant meeple. What does that do? So the elephant meeple comes in the game. There isn't tiers to this game. You can add on metal coins, but there is one size fits all pledge for this. It's 80 bucks US. You get the game. You get a lot of components. There's wood components. There's metal components. There is a little elephant meeple. And that basically represents the instability within India. So depending on where the elephant goes, that's where an uprising will happen. And uprisings will damage your trade routes. They can shift political alliances within the continent of India. So maybe you had allies that you don't have anymore and they can cut off trade routes as well. So did they are they an actual factor on the board? The elephant meeple is physically moving around the board and doing stuff. Oh, it's not a score tracker or some kind of mood tracker. It's an actual like thing that gets in the way like an elephant would yeah exactly that's probably the best thing i've seen in this like artistically i'm like i love that elephant i do not care for this 1700s artwork but it's set in the 1700s so i mean they nailed it i will say the game overall is a little on the beige side i don't think it's aspiring to be super super beautiful with that being said there is a lot of information on the board and I think if you went too, too flashy, it would be difficult to parse what's going on. As it is right now, there is color coding and there is um, text to kind of indicate what on earth is going on. If you went a little bit too much more into it, I think it would become difficult to parse. But I do agree that it uh, it's not exactly something you want to put on your wall. Not to sound too much like Barney Stinson, but like it does feel like newer is always better because like they have a... Uh, a chart of the first edition and I'm like wow and then the second one's a big improvement but if I just looked at the, the improvement I wouldn't you know notice uh, how much of a difference like how much flashier it is wait till you hear my next yeah. game <laughs> oh okay well I have one and this is a brand new game this is Hippocrates and this one comes from Game Brewer uh, essentially this is set in the ancient Greek times where medicine is not great uh, so you have this huge board. At the top of it, you can recruit doctors. And on the bottom, you've got patients you can treat. And the idea is that you can select which patients you want. And every time you pick a patient, you either get like some medicine that can help them or you can get like little bonuses. 
And even if you pick up a patient and you're like, well, this sounds interesting. If I'm able to do that, I can get two uh, potions. That sounds fantastic, but it actually can hurt another mechanic, which is your reputation. And funny enough, if you have a bad reputation as a doctor or as a as someone who hires uh, doctors, it makes the game much harder. Okay. Are you brewing the medicine yourself or does that come when you hire a doctor? Unlike in the United States, if you got the money, you can essentially pay for it yourself. Okay. So if you pick up a patient, sometimes they come with medicine or if you select a certain uh, spot on the board, you'll get medicine. Uh, the cool thing I've found about this is that in two three-player games, there's an AI that also goes, and essentially the AI will take out the highest patient on the board or the highest doctor on the board. So you always kind of know which one's going to get eliminated. So if you're like, oh, I really want this bonus. However, my second option will be gone after this round because the AI will kick it out. Mm. So you have patients that come in and their requirements are on their cards. So sometimes they need potions, sometimes they need certain vials. And if the doctors aren't great with those, then it's not going to work. So you could recruit a doctor because, well, it can score me seven points. However, he's maybe not going to be the best for the patients that you have. Um, right. It's always nice to have them on backups, but sometimes you'll, you could spend uh, money on doctors you just never use. And what's cool is the doctors are in hexagons and the patients are in squares. However, there's little chunks taken out of the sides. So the hexagons actually click in with the, the patients. Oh, nice. Your doctors, some of them can perform on three different patients. Sometimes they only perform on one. And when they finish their patient quota, then they retire, you score points, etc. And then you got to get more doctors. The Kickstarter edition looks very cool. It's a custom insert in there, so you don't have to ask Evan to make you one. I'll do it anyway. I'll throw it away, John. <laughs> right. It's gone. I don't know. I like the mechanics, and I like uh, the layout. And I definitely like the theme. Uh, Metal Coins um, is the add-on you can throw in there. Uh, and then shipping's not too ridiculous. No, uh, 15 euros Canadian, by the or sorry, yeah, 15 euros Canadian, everyone. Uh, 15 yeah. euros to Canada. You just changed. <laughs> Yeah, if you're interested in uh, how the ancient Greeks did medicine, this is definitely the game for you. Speaking of being interested in old stuff, if you thought John Company was niche, how would you like a game centered around what the British used to refer to as the great game? I'd be very interested. And I'm not talking about golf. I'm talking about Pax Pamir. And you might be thinking to okay. yourself, Evan, what are you talking about? Pax Pamir? That Kickstarter happened ages ago. And you would be correct. However... It is the same designer that is doing John Company, and as an add-on to the John Company Kickstarter, you can just not kickstart John Company, you can just backpacks Pamir. Okay, now this doesn't contribute at all to anything they've done in the past, right? You just straight up get the game. So it is not a retail game. I did a little bit of oh. looking into it. You can buy it at retail, but it's only retail outlets that contributed to the Kickstarter. And there is a bit of a price swing because of that. 401 Games, which is a Canadian board game um, company based out of Ontario, is charging 120 bucks for a sold-out PAX Premier 2nd Edition, uh, whereas the Kickstarter has it in for 70 USD. So about 80 bucks Canadian, give or take, depending on uh, what the exchange rate is today. And what this game is going to be is a focus on a confrontation that happened in Afghanistan a couple hundred years ago, about 150 years ago. 
basically what was happening was British holdings in India were being threatened by a growing Russian empire and the British were kind of afraid that the Russians were going to invade India and take over what was a very large holding for the British. So they began to move into Afghanistan and use Afghanistan as kind of a front for preventing an invasion of India. Russia was claiming, hey, we don't intend to invade India, but we're going to move into Afghanistan as well just in case we'd kind of like to have that as a country in our belt. And the Afghanistan people were sort of like, hey, we don't really want you here, but maybe we can make a deal. So in Pax Pamir, you're going to play as a warlord and choose a side in this confrontation. You could choose the side of the Russians, the British, or the Afghani forces. And what's interesting about it is, much like war in real life, your alliances are always shifting. And at certain points in the game, you can flat out shift alliances if you feel like that's going to be more advantageous to you. So you can go from being on the side of the Russians to the side of the British if you think you're going to be able to score more points that particular round by doing that. And as a result, other players could be in the same faction that you are, at which point you can't attack them. But you can still send spies in to destroy some of their tableau, take off some of their resources, that sort of thing. So how exactly do you play this? So it's going to be played over a course of rounds. Uh, there is a market deck where you can buy influence with different characters from history. There is uh, a little bit of flavor text on all the cards, kind of giving you more historical context for what happened and who these people were. And those cards are going to give you actions that you can use. They will increase the size of the tableau you can build. They will increase the size of the hand of cards you can have. They're also going to score you points because depending on what cards come out of the market phase, so basically every round, some cards are going to leave the market, new cards are going to enter. And if a dominance card enters the market and someone either pays for it or it hits the end and then drops off the market track, that will trigger a scoring round. You count up the different factions on the board. Whoever is dominant on the board, if a player is allied to that faction, they would score points. And if a player isn't allied to them, they wouldn't get anything. And then after four of those cards come out, game ends. Or if one player ever moves beyond four points ahead of the second player, they would win. What seems to be the appeal for you in this? It's very layered in all of the different mechanics because every single system affects another system. So let's say you have a lot of cards in your tableau that are Russian-leaning and you're allied with Russia, but then all of a sudden uh, it's starting to shift more into the favor of the British and you figure, you know what, I think I can switch over to the British alliance really quick. You would lose all the cards on your tableau that are Russian if you were to switch alliances. So there's a lot of timing in this game where it's hold off, hold off, hold off. I think I can swing this back in favor of Russia. Oh, wait, I can't. I'm going to quickly bail out and switch over to British. But in doing that, you're going to score fewer points because you now have fewer cards in your tableau, which go towards the end of round scoring. I'm not sure if I'm explaining this clearly. I get it. I think I need to play it for sure. Uh, one thing I really like is uh, the history side of it. When you mentioned that there's little uh, notes on the card, like... I'm looking at some of the cards now, and like pretty much everyone in here has a Wikipedia page, and that's just, I like it when games sneak in a little education once in a while. Like these guys have multi layered Wikipedia pages to them, mm -hmm. and I have no idea any of these people. And what's really interesting is that as little as we really talk about this conflict, I mean, I hadn't even heard of this conflict prior to hearing about the game. This kind of set the stage for 
everything that would follow in Afghanistan, even up to today. Uh, orig so this is a second edition. Originally, the game was published in collaboration with a gentleman named uh, Philip Eklund, who is a rather dubious figure within the board game scene because when the first edition of Pax Premier came out, he inserted an essay into the game called In Defense of Colonialism, which was obviously kind of controversial, still very much is. The designer of the game, again, Cole Worley, uh, allegedly did not want that essay going in the game, and he said, look, if you're going to make me put this in the game, at least let me put another essay that counters your essay as, hey, colonialism was bad. And so they agreed to those terms, and then in the 11th hour, Phil said, just kidding, you're not getting your essay put in there, I'm just leaving my essay in there. And so the second edition kind of aimed to rectify that. Again, bring the focus more towards, there are definitely atrocities that are committed during colonialism. It's not always black and white though, there's a lot of layers to it, and I think that that's a pretty admirable thing that they've done in trying to not only redeem the image that the game had because of that essay, but also bring more light to a conflict that did kind of mess a country up for a long time. So what's different in this third edition? It's a reprinting of the second edition. But with that being said, remember how I said that uh, John Company is an upgrade? It's still kind of on the beige side. Look yes. at Board Game Geek and look at the pictures of the second edition of this game. The board is made of cloth and it's embroidered. that's functional it's functional you could put this on your wall and all the little military pieces instead of having little minis with like guns or something they are these engraved stone pillars made out of uh really nice plastic i just think the presentation of this game is gorgeous the coins are all modeled after um they're not called shekels i don't remember what they were called in afghanistan at that time but like off of period accurate coins i i think the presentation of this game is really really something special I have some new additions for you. Uh, this is the three-in-one Kickstarter that uh, BoardGameTables.com is doing. I think it's really wild that BoardGameTables.com has a board game collection. <laughs> and this isn't the first time. This is the 14th project they've 14th? done. 14th? I didn't realize they'd done that many. Oh, my word. Uh, what's super nice about this, if you live in the U.S., any pledge you have, no matter how big, how small, it's $4 shipping. If you live in Canada, U.K., or Europe, it's $9 flat shipping. So if you just wanted one of these projects, it's $9. If you wanted all these projects and all the little add-ons, it's $9. Ooh. I don't know who they bribed or <laughs> how they're getting it to you. Maybe the developers are just driving it to their door and they're just eating the cost of gas. But I love the art style in all three of these. So the games in this project are Ghosts of Christmas Past, which based off of a, a game called Time Peril Tricks. The idea is that you want to play tricks to get more cards back. If you're starting off that round and the suit is heart and you throw out an ace, well, no one can beat an ace, so everyone just throws out uh, a heart of their choice. If they don't have a heart, then they have to throw out something else. And the idea is to get more tricks back. So, like, if you, someone throws out an ace, you're not going to throw out your king of hearts. If hearts comes up again, chances are you could beat, like, you can beat everything else. So, it, there's not necessarily a lot of decision making in there, but there are different variants of trick uh, card games, and this is one of them. So, something like Wizard, like, wow, I could win every trick. I think I could win eight tricks. So, you bid on how many tricks you're going to get. 
and that's what you do in uh, Ghosts of Christmas Past. So you bid on uh, your tricks that you think you're going to get in a round, and then you take a bunch of door tokens back, and then you say, okay, I'm going to win at least four of these. So if you play Wizard and uh, other trick-based games, like that's pretty straightforward. However, to throw a wrench in there, you don't always have to follow suit based on what the first action was. For most trick games, if someone throws out a heart, then you all have to play hearts no matter what. In this, if the first player throws out uh, a heart, in this game it's uh, it's colors, but so let's just say, for example, blue, they have three options on where they want to lay that card. So they could be like, well, I'm gonna, I could put it in Christmas past, present, or future. Mm. And so they throw out a high yellow. And then the next player is like, well, I don't know if I'm going to beat that yellow, but I'm going to throw out a high blue on Christmas present. And then you get to the next player, the third player. And if they want to play on present or past, they either have to do yellow or blue, or they pick something different for future. And that's why it was called time palette tricks, because you're messing around with who got order and what happened. And I just want to say the art looks fantastic. And not only is it Ghost of Christmas, but if you pledge for it, you will get it by Christmas as well. I do really like the art style. It's pretty good. The other one, I'm not going to spend too much time in it because it's the new one. Have you heard of GameStop, Evan? As a matter of fact, I was in one once. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I should buy stock into this thing? You know, if I had a Sean, I'd be a very rich man today. (laughs) Or a very broke man, you know? (laughs) Yeah, you never know. So if you're one who follows the stock market, whether it comes to uh, investing to a long-term stock or to short a stock or to squeeze a stock, bear rate is for you. Like the mechanics went a little over my head, but essentially it just playing the stock market. The one that had me most interested was uh, Factory Funner. Sorry, for those people who just don't uh, like bad English in their titles, the Factory Funner is probably not for you, but for everyone else, you are in charge of making a factory as efficient as possible. So think to Factorio or a Satisfactory. And the idea is that you are trying to score as many points as possible, pretty much like any board game, but you have this factory floor in front of you and there's certain obstacles that can get in your way. Like sometimes the washroom's just gonna be in the middle of the factory. Why? I don't know, but you've gotta deal with it. So on your turn, Everyone has a bunch of tiles in front of them, and everyone flips the top tile over, and suddenly it's a speed game. So you're trying to go for the tile that most benefits you. Never necessarily love speed games in board games. I feel like, I don't know, I'm very much strategy, take time on your turn, Mm -hmm. and then go for it. But there's a catch in this. If I see something that I really, really want, and I just go, that's mine, pick it up, I would lose a point. You lose points if you are the first to grab a tile that round? Yeah. To play the tile, there's certain conditions on it. So some tiles, they need different kind of connections to it. So essentially you have uh, blue goo, red goo, green goo. For example, let's say you have something that shakes one yellow and turns it into one blue. So you need to have some yellow to start off with. So you would take one of your goo tanks, in this case the yellow tank, connect it to this tile, and then connect uh, a reservoir basin into the blue line. And now you've got a little factory. So you're thinking, well, this is great. This is nice. And then on the next turn, you pick up a tile that says, hey, now I need one blue line and uh, one yellow line, and we will turn into two green. 
and think, well, okay, so now you have to readjust your board to make that condition happen. Can you move the components around once they're done or once they're down, they're locked in place? Both. Can't ever move any machine where you put down. So if you put down a tile, it's stuck there. You can move the reservoir tiles and you can move the tanks of goo anywhere you want. Okay. You could throw them in the corner and then add pipe all the way up. The catch is for everything you add to the board, you will lose a point. <laughs> the tiles you lay down will have points in them. So sometimes it's three, four, five. So if you play a tile down, you're like, oh, this is worth three. I put the goo tank here. Okay, that's worth two. I put the reservoir here. That's worth one. So you only end up scoring one. But throughout the game, if you're able to synergize, then you can score more points in the end. And if you're able to make a new line, you start going at it and you're thinking, okay, this is very simple. And then after like turn three, four, five, suddenly it turns into Factorio where you're like, yeah. you're rotating things just to get it in there and you're doing like almost mazes to get there. And it turns into this puzzle of like, well, I just need orange goo. How do I get the orange goo there? And you need certain volumes of the orange goo there. Once you get going, you can make like crazy looking factories it kind of feels like factorio the board game uh, at times i have heard that this game can have a little bit of analysis paralysis to it i can kind of see where that comes from now just looking at the little looping gif they have on kickstarter i could see how you could sit there and go my brain is coming out of my ears right now <laughs> oh yeah and i was watching a tutorial video of like how to play this and like by turn, because there's eight rounds, by turn seven, his brain broke. And like, I know things are even harder on camera, but like, he's like, oh, I'll just put it here. Like, no, then I stick it in the corner and I can't get the, the, the tube here. But like, but if I move this and like, there's a lot going on. It reminds me of a more complicated version of Curious Cargo, if you know that one. I don't know that one, no. So Curious Cargo is a two-player game, which is very similar where you're like laying pipes and you can lay pipes over other pipes and you can very quickly think like, oh, this is great. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh no, I've set this up so that my opponent can load me up with bad products. And uh, oh, I, I like the look of it. The the brain melting aspect looks fun. So on Kickstarter, the upgrades that you can get for this, uh, you can get wooden wreaths for Ghosts of Christmas Past. You get a custom wood insert. Um, Spicy. For factory funner. Uh, and then for Bear Raid, you get a bunch of screen printed uh, Woodstock discs. And if you went just crazy, you can get a big bag. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish more Kickstarters did weird stuff like that. Like, you know what? Here's a messenger bag for board games. Yeah. It says apparently you can hold seven ticket to rides. That's a lot of ticket to rides. Right? Why would you want seven ticket to rides? That's too many. I don't know. Maybe some, you're a masochist and you just add all the components together and you're like, go for it. Can you just back the bag? <laughs> That's a great question. I never thought of that. It doesn't look like you can. I'd like to learn a little bit more about Bear Aid. I think that uh, also seems like kind of a fun idea. It looks a little bit more convoluted compared to the other two games as far as complexity, which you kind of expect because it is stock. But I like how they've just taken real companies and done really smart parodies of them. And they're also very explicit. Like, you can just manipulate the stock market. I'm like, finally, finally, we can be honest about it. Yeah, that seems like a nice introductory economic game from the little bit I'm seeing of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lot of games. I will say, I think out of the last three weeks we've done this, the closest I have come to hitting the back button is on packs. And I, it looks like something I want in my collection, Sean. 
and you think you'd be able to teach it? That's the one hesitation I have is I know it's a little bit heavier and like the group that we play in has played some heavier games. Like I think the heaviest one we've really tackled is Root, which I think people like. So I don't think this is going to be any more difficult than Root, but it's very similar in that it kind of takes like two or three turns before you really understand what's going on and can start to truly strategize with it. Yeah, I think the I think Factory Funner for me for again I I'm someone who's put almost a hundred hours into Factorio, so I mean of course that's something I mm-hmm. straight up my alley. <laughs> Plus, it's got neon colors, which you know something goes off my brain every time I see neon colors. Especially when there's so much beige in board games. <laughs> but to be fair, they didn't have a lot of color options back then. And that's what I like about second edition of PAX is, yes, the board is beige, but it's embroidered beige. And man, those military tokens are very bright. Nice little pastels. Well, if there's a game up on Kickstarter that we did not talk about and you're upset that we didn't cover it, please make sure to let us know by emailing ifoundathingpod at gmail.com. If you have some experience playing any of these games yourself and you want to chime in, please be sure to let us know or just ask us any generic questions. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more stuff that we found on Kickstarter. I'm Evan Winch. And I'm Sean Moore. And have yourself a merry week. Mm-hmm.